When I was a student at the University of Delaware, I wrote a column for the student newspaper, The Review, calling for the men's soccer coach, a guy named Lauren Klein, to be fired. The team wasn't very good, and I'd heard some grumblings from players. So I warmed up my pen, and I insisted the squad needed a change in leadership. But here's the thing, the important thing. I'd never seen the men's soccer team play. Not one single game. I called for a man to lose his job. A man with a wife, a man with kids, a man presumably with a mortgage, with car payments. I called for him in print to be fired without having watched his team play even once. That shame still follows me. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Cheo Hodari Coker, the former journalist who now applies his pen and talents in Hollywood. He's a creator of Marvel's Luke Cage, the co-screenwriter of such movies as Notorious, Low Riders, and Creed II, and the author of the 2013 book, Unbelievable, The Life, Death, and Afterlife of the Notorious B.I.G. This is episode number 257. Let's sing some Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right. First of all, thank you so much for doing this. This is what I wanted to do for a long time. Uh, so I, No, thank you. And, and I've, I've been elusive for a long time. All right. So um, I had something happen recently and I'm very happy I'm talking to you. This is a good, good subject right here. A friend of mine named John Worth, I'm also a writer and I were commissioned yeah. to write our first script. Okay. And it's based on a school shooting. It's a fictional account of a school shooting and the seriousness of the school shooting. We were hired to do it. We were given money to do it. We took a couple of months. We wrote this script. We sent it in and we got the comments back the other day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't even know what, and I, cause I heard you talk about notorious and how you wrote, I think two different versions of notorious and you know, the back and forth of notorious. I mean, there's nothing recognizable. The comments are basically take this thing, put in a blender, then put in another blender, then throw it off a cliff, then go down and get it. And maybe you can put it together again. Oh yeah. Number one, is that normal? Number two, how do you deal with this shit? Okay. Number one. Yes, that's absolutely normal. Number two, the thing is, it's the, it's the secret and the science of understanding the note behind the note. The thing about notes, because this, this is the most fascinating part of the process, is that everybody that is a part of the process, from the producers to the executives, you know, even though some of the suggestions themselves are stupid, they happen to be very smart people that don't fully understand how to do your job and how and how to do the things that you've been hired to do. Because for them, writing is alchemy for most for, for most executives. Now, now, occasionally you do get those those great executives that, that really do understand the process from all sides. Right. But a lot of what it is, the reactions are basically insecurity. It's like they keep telling you don't spoon feed the audience, but every single decision that they're telling you would spoon feed the audience. Right. And then the other thing that's happening is that it's unfair sometimes to ask a writer to do the things that they're asking you to do, because that's really the purview of a director. It's really the job of somebody who's going to have the overall 
stance or position to basically execute or make sure to protect the decisions that are made. But yet they want you to basically visually make all the decisions on the page. They want you to have the characters stand up and do things. And then so what happens is a lot of it, honestly, is you have to think about the note behind the note. So the note behind the note is you'll get a note like saying, um, you know, the character seems undermotivated. So what does that mean? Does that mean that you don't understand why the character is doing what they're doing? Do you need to see, do you actually need, if in a school shooting, do you need to see the character get pushed down a flight of stairs and get slapped? Do you need to see him or her assemble the gun? You know, do you need to see things happening at home? Or do you need for them explicitly to say, John, trip me. I'm so sick and tired of getting pushed down the stairs. You know what? Me and so-and-so are going to get some guns and we're going to go back to school. Now, okay, I'm speaking. I don't know anything about the script, so I don't want anybody all of a sudden start taking clips out of this and start using no, my voice saying, oh, okay, I'm, I'm talking strictly in the, re- in the reference of, of the story that you haven't even told me about, but it's just the subject matter, okay? But that's kind of what it is. And so, like, you have to understand, so wait a minute, is there something with the dialogue that maybe isn't helping us? Is there something in terms of, do we need to see another scene? where we understand why this person is motivated to do to do this you know okay if you have 20 scenes in scene five do we have the introduction like say the character is sitting with their grandfather and the grandfather has a hunting rifle and talks about something that happened back in the day that's going to plant the seed that's going to you know in scene 15 or 17 is going to now we understand why this character is is has this inception moment and then now we're seeing the execution um how do you, um, you know, underline that? Is it, a, is it in a line of dialogue? Are they watching something on television? Um, do we see it in the room as, the, as a description? And then when the character walks in the living room again, sees his, his, his grandfather's old hunting rifle or something? Like, that's the kind of thing um, that you have to deal with. Is trying to, and that's why it's always important. This is what I do. You get the slew of notes, and then the first thing you're like, what the fuck? Like, I can't. And you that's, just say you. That's where you I know. am right now. That is exactly where I am right now. Walk around the room. Get it out of your system. Get on the get on the treadmill. Walk, walk the dog. Do whatever you got to do to get that out. And then sit down. And then what I do is I respond note for note. Like I, I, I answer the email and then I note for note. Um either in bold or whatever else, I answer all of the questions that I have based on their note. And the reason that you do that is because now they're on record asking for this. Now you're on record saying, are you sure this is what you want? And from there, you're going to, then you have to listen and they will come up with, sometimes they'll come back with, with something either crazier or they'll be very mannered and saying, oh, what I really wanted, what I really meant was this. What I really meant was that. And then you take that moment and then you understand a semblance of what they really want. Because here's the other thing about notes. If you do all their notes that they've given you and it sends the project off a cliff, it's not their bad notes that's to blame. It's your execution. It's all your fault because you're the writer. It does not matter. So the thing is, is following a bad note can be just as um, ugly for you as ignoring or, or, or not following their notes because it's all, ultimately it's going to be your fault either way. And the reason that they ask the notes and reason in the reason that they never put their names on the notes, particularly if it's coming from more than one source is because they're cowards. 
where however you guys, your names are on it. So they get to hide behind that. But ultimately, that gives you power. So my thing is respond to the respond to the notes in a written way. See what they come back with. And then you got to have the gut check and saying, OK, this is how I'm going to do this note. It might not be the way that they ask, but I'm going to try my best to do this and execute this in a way. And then what happens is like if you do that, usually the notes fall away because you will have done something that is different enough where they feel acknowledged or it doesn't happen. You get fired. But then again, you might get fired anyway. Right. Because the director might come on and have somebody else they have in mind. I mean, the writer's position in Hollywood is always that of getting fired. You, you just got to get used to it, unfortunately. Having gone through this enough times, like I, I'm basically a rookie here and you're a 15 year vet at this point. Does that prevent you from handing something in and thinking, I just nailed this. They're going to love this. This is the best thing I've ever written. No, because I mean, ultimately, you know, and this is this, this will be me being a little more cynical, but then sometimes you have to remember like remembering what I used to do for free versus like what they pay me now. And then even getting fired, the amounts of money that I've made. And I'm not like even at the upper echelon, but I'm, I'm, I'm okay. You know what I'm saying? It's like, but the amount of money, even at my level, talking to the lay person, I mean, you just, you just sound like an asshole because they because have any complaints because people have quote unquote real jobs. And for the amount of money that you can make doing this, uh, you know, to complain about getting fired where they pay you anyway, you know, you, you're not going to get any sympathy, you know, either way. So you can't really, and, and I know this sounds counterintuitive, you can't write for the money. What you're writing for is, and this is ultimately why so many, so many writers become directors. You're just trying to make sure that your, that your initial intentions survive. Um, and, you want to get it to the point where you can breathe enough life that somebody reads it and says, you know what? I've got to get this to an actor. I've got to get this to a director so that we can now really uplift this thing and make it real. And then guess what? <laughs> you have to write again because then if you get an actor worth their salt, they're either going to say, wait, this is too much dialogue and I can do this, but look, or they're going to say, you're going to get the questions. Well, what did, what was there? What were they thinking? It's all about motivation. And then, and then you're going to have to like, you know, on your feet, learn how to interpret that and then immediately put that into the script or in a way that they can now do what they do. That's the difference between where I started, you know, you know like writing movies, some getting sold, some not made, some eventually got made to television and television is really where you I, I, like, it made me a better writer. I mean, dramatically because that's when stuff gets made. That's when you really are working with actors and you're working with directors and you're working with producers and you have a, a different understanding of the process. And actually, honestly, gives me the perspective to understand why things get, get rewritten, like, and how to approach the job of, re of rewriting, even my own stuff. But, you know, the way that I put it is that Cheo Hodari Coker hands in the first draft, but C.H. Coker is hired to rewrite Cheo Hodari Coker. <laughs> And C.H. Coker sees the same script differently and is a lot more mercenary about how the cuts are made and what lives and what dies. I mean, you and I, we both have journalism backgrounds. You were a longtime music writer, hip hop writer, bunch of ton of places. Mm -hmm. You now do a lot of TV work. Obviously, you know, Southland, Ray Donovan, you have a long resume here. Is collaborative writing an enjoyable thing for you? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's more fun. It's, it's always more fun than doing it alone. Like, you know, feature writing is like, I mean, writing, you know, feature length screenplays is like space. Like no one can hear you scream. 
you know, to, to, to paraphrase the, uh, the old aliens tagline, you know, what I like about the collaborative nature of television is that in the writer's room, you really get to kind of talk your way through the beats and, you know, it's a different perspective from show running than it is also doing it from where you're not the showrunner and you're a producer on a show, but you know, you kind of break a story and then get assigned the episode. Um, it's a lot more fun because it's kind of like working on an assignment. It's, 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 it's not that different than high school or college where you have to work on an assignment. And so you, part of it, what you're trying to do is you're trying to impress your fellow classmates, but you're ultimately trying to do the best job that you can. So I'm not one of these writers that feels like, oh, my way is the only way to do things. And every single word is sacrosanct. And you can't do this and you can't do that. You know, like I, I think, I mean, there are writers like that, you know, the Quentin Tarantino's of the world and the Aaron Sorkin's are very specific. And that's also why they became directors is because of the fact that they're protecting their words, so to speak. Ultimately, I want to direct, but, you know, journalism to a certain extent got me, you know, because we've all been rewritten, you know, like have a, a top editor or somebody that comes in and just like completely eviscerates what you've done. And you learn different ways of how to get to a different point um, better, you know, from that. And you just learn the, the, the different styles. I think journalism in some ways is a great training ground for screenwriting because words themselves become less precious and you just kind of have to apply that same mentality to what you're doing now. And just remember what that was like. I feel like I became a more sane human being. Like when I was an early journalist, Tennessean and Sports Illustrated, those my first two spots. I was the guy who was like, you can't change that word. That word is everything. My story's ruined. It's ruined. Everyone's going to, the story sucks now. I don't care. I don't want my byline on it. Like I was that guy, right? Yeah. I didn't realize none of the readers notice. And it's a very liberating moment when you realize none of the readers actually notice. And today's article is literally tomorrow's fish wrap. You know, I mean, well, that's the thing, you know, daily journalism allows that. But then again, you know, you get to be God, so to speak, when you write your books. Yeah. And the fact that you're as fast and as prolific as you are. And then at the same time that you do as much research, I, like my question to you is, when do you sleep, man? Because I, I, I like when do you sleep? <laughs> I guess neither one of us sleeps because like, you know, every time you drop one of these books, like because I'm a book geek and having written a book, you know, like, a, you know, the when I wrote Unbelievable Life, Death and Affleck and Taurus B.I.G., like, you know, writing the end notes was very important to me because so few hip hop books had actual like end notes and had, you know, references because, I, you know, because in writing a book and doing the research, I, I became a geek about that. Yeah. And so that so one of the joys of picking up your books is just like, oh, my God, the references and just the interviews. I'm like. How the hell? Even the transcripts, like, like, how do you do it? I just have no life, man. I don't know. <laughs> I, I just, but it's like it's probably the same thing with you. Like, it becomes, it becomes an obsession. It really becomes an obsession, and you just, right? I mean, it doesn't. It's all in the detail. Everything is in the details, and the dig, 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 and then you look up, and seven hours have passed, and I've watched the same clip of a Lakers game from 1983 a hundred times, trying to find out which finger the ball went off, you know, little stupid things like that. Sometimes people don't understand how the minutia gives you the ideas for the map for the bigger moments. And sometimes knowing that little thing can give you the insight into what someone's thinking at that moment, or at the very least give a window to ask the right question to unlock certain things. 
it's no different in, in screenwriting. Like, you know, sometimes what, because I, I, I do tend to write a lot of fact-based stuff. Sometimes I'll, I'll drive my producers crazy. Cause they're like, why do you care that they see the Sussex records logo for, for, for Scorpio in this hip hop scene? And I'm like, well, because I know that somebody in the audience that's a DJ is going to have a, a sense memory and we film it correctly. And they see that moment, that little bit of the authenticity makes the difference. Um, you know, because of the fact like that, that's why one of the reasons straight out of Compton, you know, which I, which I, I did some ghosting on, but one of the reasons that it really worked as a film was that moment when you hear Shirelle's, I didn't mean to turn you on. Come on. It's, it's such, it's, a, it's really obscure, but really relevant classic to that era and that time. And the second you heard that song, you were like, okay, they're trying to get this right for real. You know, here's the thing. When you watch Scorsese movie, Scorsese is a geek about the details. Yeah. Like he would literally stop a camera from running because he's like, you know, the gangsters in my neighborhood didn't wear their, you know, didn't wear their shoes like this or, or you know, this guy's polish isn't right enough. And he would literally take out a rag and polish the guy's shoes so that it looks a certain way. Michael Mann will shoot him, will slap a motherfucker <laughs> like over details. Yeah. So all that stuff is relevant. I had uh, one of the writers, this guy, Max Bornstein of the Winning Time, the Lakers series is on. And there's a moment in the first episode when Magic is still in, in Lansing, Michigan, and he's walking through his room, his house. And he says to his aunt, he's like, uh, or his aunt says to him, she's just sitting on the couch. And she says, tell your mama not to burn the chicken again. And he goes, that's between you and mama and whatever. It's so throwaway. 99% of people never think about it, would never pay attention to it. But I just think those moments of authenticity his aunt saying to him, a young Magic Johnson, tell your mom not to burn the chicken again. I love moments like that. I'm a nerd for moments like that when I'm watching movies or TV shows or even reading books. The little tiny, 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 tiniest things, I think, explode and people don't even realize it. You know, you you really want that. Like, I mean, like, I mean, perfect example. It's like the uh, um, I still for Sunday gravy, like Clemenza's spaghetti recipe, the middle of the Godfather. You know, he's like, you know, putting put your meat, your sausage, you know, add a little wine, a little sugar. You know, that's my trick. You know, come here, kid. You, 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 you're going to have to make you maybe cook for 20 guys one day, you know? Wait, all right. So I have some specific career questions for you here. Number one, I was listening to an interview you did. And um, years ago, you wrote a screenplay based on the life of former Washington mayor, Marion Barry. Mm -hmm. And Jamie Foxx was really interested and yeah. this thing was going to be a thing like this was going to be a thing. And then it didn't become a thing. Well, it's funny because, you know, um, I, I co-wrote that screenplay with my uncle, Richard Wesley. Um, Rich wrote Uptown Saturday Night and Let's Do It Again. But also it's just he's also an incredible dramatist, you know, just in terms of his plays. And also like in terms of like he also wrote Mandela, the clerk with Sidney Poitier. And, you know, he's had a long association with Sidney Poitier and just really just one of the most knowledgeable people on the planet. And so we had a great time writing about Marion Barry. And I mean, Marion Barry is a whole another trip in itself. And we wrote the screenplay. Um, it worked its way up through the ranks at HBO. It's our irony of ironies. Chris Rock was one of the producers of it. And it got to the point where Jamie Foxx was going to play Marion Barry. And so there was a director attached, Liana Chasso, who directed uh, Sugar Hill. Like it was one of those things that was headed towards production. But then as what happens with actors, another movie was just ahead of it. And it was this independent movie and in filming in New Orleans. And Jamie said, you know what? 
I'm attached to this indie movie in New Orleans and I'm going to go shoot it and we'll see if it gets picked up. And I promise after I'm done with that, I'm going to come back and do Mary and Barry. Well, it turns out the independent movie in New Orleans was, was Ray. Right. <laughs> and so he did Ray and that, that was that. This business is so confusing to me. Like this project obviously meant something. Mm-hmm. You did it with your uncle. You had a mega star attached and then it just, it's, you know, sand through the fingers. Like how, how are you able emotionally as a writer, as a creator, et cetera, to able to deal with that? Well, most importantly, it's like, you know, got paid in the writer's guilds, health insurance, you know, like you, you can't always, you can't live and die by every single project because I, one of my closest friends in the business is a producer named Rudy Langless. Rudy um, produced um, the hurricane and a few other things. And one of the things that Rudy said to me, I asked, I asked Rudy once, like, what is the job of a producer? And he said, every single project wants to die. And the only job of a producer is to keep it alive. That's it. It's that, you know, and, and, you know, this is somebody that, you know, is constantly, you know, is really close friends with Denzel Washington and has various projects with him and a lot of things that take years sometimes to come together. Um, he, he definitely has the patience of Job. But he he made me understand that, like, no matter at what level, all pre- all projects are just very precarious. They can all fall apart in so many different ways. And the only thing you can do as a producer is keep them alive. And so it gave me a different perspective from a writing standpoint of like, you know, sometimes these things happen. So that's why, like, I don't do victory laps on Twitter or on Instagram when I when when I get a project. I, I got projects right now that like literally if I went public with what I'm working on and the people that I'm working with. I mean, I can do all that, I'll get all the congratulations, and all the adulation, but it's like, i got a script to write. And I'm going to have to write that script again once I rewrite it. And who knows what happens with it? So I just learned a long time ago, it's better to really talk about things when they're actually out in public, as opposed to, you know, um, when they're not like, like when they're, um, you know, gestating, so to speak. That's, first of all, insanely good advice. My first book about the 86 Mets was called The Bad Guys One. It was optioned years ago. First book ever optioned. They paid me $30,000, $30,000. Mom, dad, they're making a movie of my book. Jeff, you know who we really were? Denzel is interested in this. Denzel's interested in this. Halle Berry, you know, blah, 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 blah. And like, I've never bragged about anything that hasn't been done again since. Yeah. Because it all just. Yeah. It's also the other side. Like, you know, like I remember because working for Marvel is kind of, it's probably the writer's equivalent of, of working in the CIA because they're so secretive and there's so many things that are like that. And um, I remember when I got the Luke Cage gig, it was one of the most coveted gigs in town. So, and I got it and I couldn't tell anybody, I couldn't tell anybody. Okay. And so, you know, of course I had to write the, um, the pilot and the second episode and they really ne- needed to understand it if they were actually going to make it, you know, and, and they knew they were going to make it like, could I pull it off? Was I the guy, so to speak? So I actually did well and was able to get into production. We were able to hire a writing staff and, you know, was able to work with such incredible people as, you know, Charles Murray, Kayla Cooper and, and um, so many writers, uh, you know, Ida Kroll and um, people that are, you know, so many of us are, are, are lucky enough to still be, you know, doing things. But the thing was, was that I couldn't tell anybody about the gig. And then it finally got announced. 
And when it got announced that I was going to be the showrunner and that and that the project was going forward, it was fun for about 20 minutes. Because then I just got flooded with every single resume and it just it just wasn't fun. It was like all of a sudden, like before we even really even picked any of the jobs or any staffed or, or anything, I just got flooded. And I was just like, I just said at that moment, like, I'm never going to tell anybody about anything until it's coming out ever again. And then I've stopped really worrying about announcements because to me, it just gets in the way of the work because ultimately that's all that matters is the work. How did you get the Luke Cage gig? I don't even know how this works. Like, how'd you get that job? Um, right place, right time. You know, um, I was coming off of Ray Donovan at the same time. Um, you know, I had done Southland. I had done SLA as well as um, Almost Human. So I had enough different types of credits. Um, I was passionate about the subject matter because I've, I've been a lifelong geek. Really, the, the craziest thing that got me the job was um, I described it in my pitch as, you know, what did I say? I said, I want to do City of God meets Belly as written by the staff of The Wire. And Jeff Loeb, I had no idea he was really tight with Hype Williams because I guess he and Hype had collaborated on something. And so Belly was what Jeff grabbed onto. He's like, of course, Belly is a hip hop classic. Right, right. But I guess... Right amongst um, white people, Belly was obscure, but, but he knew, but because he knew Belly, but because he was tight with hype, he was like, Belly, all of a sudden we just clicked on that, you know? And so you, you never know what's going to get you a gig. The only thing you can do is over-prepare and, and just try to be as, as honest and forthright as you can and, and just roll with it. Like if you really want the gig, what are they saying? Can you pivot in the room to make something that you're saying fit more aligned with their vision? Or are you just so in two completely different places that it's just not going to happen? I've talked to you. We were DMing about my desire to write a Tupac book one day. And you were very right. supportive and encouraging of it. And I'm obviously a white sports writer from a small town and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you're an African-American guy. You did Notorious. Um, you have a hip hop writing background. Is there any reason you couldn't do the film version of Fiddler on the Roof? You know, like, no. and, but here's my question. Would Hollywood, Hollywood obviously being a big mushroom term, mm -hmm. has Hollywood become open-minded enough where it would allow you to do Fiddler on the Roof? You know, we need a guy to do Fiddler on the Roof. Here's our guy. Maybe, because here's the thing. The racism that, that, that occurs in Hollywood is not like typical Southern cross burning clan racism. I'm not saying that that doesn't, that doesn't exist because it does. But what I'm saying is like the real subtle racism in Hollywood is benefit of the doubt because seldom and only recently have you begin to see this happen, you know, would an African-American writer have the opportunity to tell a quote unquote non-black story, right. you know? And so it's like, that was one of the things perfect example is like i'm just being like a huge geek like a golden apple comics every wednesday when new you know, like john singleton and i would you know and charles like a lot of us would end up at golden apple or other you know comic book stores in in la when i live there every wednesday for the new comics and so when you would see a batman movie or spider-man you know you would you would talk to your agent if you're lucky enough to have one back then and be like okay 
um, I want to go up for that job. And then they would say, well, do you have any writing samples that that prove your ability to, you know, write one of these movies? And then, you know, of course, okay, I'll, I'll date myself, but this is back when Spider-Man 2 came out. Some people consider Spider-Man 2, the Sam Raimi, Alvin Sargent, um, Spider-Man, second Spider-Man movie to be one of the best. It is one of the best superhero movies of all time. My beef with that, as brilliant as that script was, is I kept saying, like, what part, what happened in ordinary people? I, I, I never saw Timothy Hutton, like, crawling on walls or doing any superhero shit. Like, what is there about that? that served as a sample that would allow the producers of the world to say, you know what? I think Alvin would do a great job with Spider-Man. And mind you, I mean, you know, of course, I mean, the, 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 the real answer is more complex because he was married to one of the producers. He's, you know, is a kind of a legend, but at the same time, that's what you're fighting against as, as a, as a black writer is constantly trying to show people like, you know, I love hip hop. I write about hip hop in my culture because it defines me and it gives me life, but I can, I also am interested in a lot of other things and given the opportunity, I can write about anything, you know, I'm given the opportunity to do. I think people like, I mean, Ryan Coogler, um, you know, when he did Creed, I, I, I think is, you know, and of course the, the success of black Panther, um, like he's one, he's a, he's a perfect example of somebody that that's crossed a lot of barriers. You know, Ava Duvernay has crossed a lot of barriers. I mean, it's people are getting, you know, the chance to do that. Jordan Peele, people are really getting more opportunities to do stuff like that. But those are some of the things you face sometimes um, is, can you, you know, can you do something? And now also now the reverse is that because people have been so underrepresented for so long, that you now almost have to be from the demographic or from, if you're going to write about something, you almost have to be from that culture to be given the job. But, you know, here's the thing. Crazily enough, these questions have happened throughout the history of Hollywood. Like, like, and what I mean by that is that when Mario Putin, like when, when Robert Evans, you know, did, you know, Mario Puzo, the favor of optioning The Godfather before it became the, the best selling book of all time at that time. And they finally decided to pick a director. They realized that they had never had an Italian-American director tell this kind of story and that hiring Coppola to do that, he would give it a certain flavor that was missing before. And obviously, you know, Coppola made, as he, as he calls it, the world's most expensive home movie. You know, just in terms of just, you know, having his, his father do the score and having like, you know, these little references from his childhood in, in there. I mean, yeah, like you, 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 you always want to be able to bring what you can bring to something, but it shouldn't preclude you from, you know, luckily they said, OK, he, this is also the guy that, that, that should do Apocalypse Now. Right. This is also the guy that should, that should do Gardens of Stone, you know, and Coppola has always done so many different things besides you know, something that came from, you know, the movies that came from his culture. The new Bone Thugs and Harmony movie that's going to come mm -hmm. out in five years. OK, I mean, right. could a white director, or white writer. Do as good a job as an African-American writer, director on the Bone Thugs and Harmony movie or the Wu-Tang movie or the whatever movie doesn't matter, does background and this could go for anything, does background impact 
the way and the quality with which a story is told on screen? It depends on the passion of the director. But here's, here's where it works. Would Hollywood let a black director direct the Shania Twain story? Right. You know what I'm saying? That's the yeah. twist because we, we know white people have, have forever been given the opportunities to tell our stories and do it well. I mean, because you can't say that, you know, that Steven Spielberg did, didn't put his foot in color purple, you know, but the, but you never get as a black person, you rarely get the opportunity to cross out and say, hey, I'm really passionate about about, you know, you know, Garth Brooks, uh, you know, like, totally. you know, uh, like I, I, I want to tell that story. People will be like, well, what do you, you know, because without thinking about this, without thinking about, OK, what are the parallels between like Waylon Jennings and like Johnny Cash and, you know, some of the more like kind of rough and tumble uh, like love stories and and gangsters still like Johnny Cash. Some of his stories are straight up gangster. Right. You know, somebody from hip hop culture, like a fact that very few people know is like, John, you know, um, Kenny Rogers, the gambler was just as popular amongst young hip hop kids in the early 80s because of the storytelling, you know, yeah. as anything else, you know, so like I could probably tell, like, give it a gambling movie. I, I probably, I probably could do an okay job with that, you know, because well, I have an affinity, you know, for that. So it's like, so, I, so to answer your question, it's like, I would ask more about what does that person understand about Cleveland? What does that person understand about what it is to come up with nothing? Right. Because if that person didn't come up with anything, like literally didn't have any money growing up, and you know, they remember hearing you know, first of the month on the radio and they understood what that meant in terms of it being a reference to when they were going to, you know, when their mom or, or their dad w was going to get their, their check, you know, in, in terms of, you know, being um, on, on public assistance, you know, that person might have a better affinity toward telling that movie than an African-American director that, comes from money and has no understanding of the basics of what that is. Right. You know, but we live in a fraught time. Yeah. So who knows if politically that would happen, you know? Um, so I don't think somebody's background should preclude them from telling any kind of story, but they have to have perspective. They have to understand the history. They really have to do the research and they really have to be able to listen to they have to hire enough people to tell them what's right and what's wrong. Is this your way of telling me that you're doing the big Shania Twain movie? Well, I mean, she, she, she's still the one I love, but you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. No, I'm not, no, but I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying, I, I just, I just try to pick the most random reference that, that, no, that's a great one. you know, before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. And I'm here with my wife, Catherine, who stars in the first episode of the hit HBO series, winning time as Donna, Rod Thorne's executive assistant with the Chicago Bulls. So that must have been thrilling. Talk to my publicist. You're joking. I am not. We're actually in negotiations for a spin-off series, Donna, The Life and Times of Rod Thorne's Executive Assistant. Well, that's actually why I wanted to talk to you, or I guess your publicist. RoyalRetros.com, kings of the throwback sports merchandise, would like to serve as the show's official wardrobe provider. They have all sorts of old-school hats, jerseys, and T-shirts from various sports and leagues. Well, now that I'm a big Hollywood star with my own looming series, I have very high demands. 
They'll give you a 10% coupon off your next purchase. I'm in. If I look at your credits, it's a fascinating IMDb page. And one of them is Creed 2, which came out in 2018. Story by. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Story by means you lost arbitration. Story by means that you wrote a screenplay. Um, you had enough contributions where you probably should have been giving a, screen, a screenplay credit. But in the back room of the of the of the Writers Guild, where these decisions are made and, and, are, and are arbitrated, they decided that your screenplay, even though I provided the entire structure of the movie, didn't merit enough to be given actual screenplay credit. So they give you a credit that no one's really happy with the story by, but at the very least acknowledges that you were a part of the movie and, you know, your name's on the poster. So. They all there's all these different meanings. Screen, you know, story by means that you probably wrote one of the earliest drafts or in some cases had a major contribution to the actual story that was told, um, you know, written by or, or, or screenplay by. Because now there are all these different credits that you see on, on movies. Right. So you have to know the difference between and and an ampersand. When you see an ampersand in a writing credit, ampersand means that these were two writers that collaborated on the screenplay at the same time. So, the, you know, the screenplay that you're working on with, with John Wardenheim, your screenplay would be and like ampersand because you guys are a writing team and means that somebody rewrote somebody. Wow. And, you know, so, so one of the first things I always check on um, when any movie comes out is I always look at the credits to, to see who's on it. And so if you see the name separated by A&D and that means that somebody rewrote somebody else. If you see the ampersand, it means they're a writing team. And so that's where it gets all political, you know, and, and that's where it gets really interesting sometimes. And people get really bitter about um, not only whether or not, because here's the thing, you only receive residual, extra residuals if you receive a on-screen credit. So even story by, even story by is, there's no, there's not a single writer that, that wants a story by, but at the very least you're acknowledged as being, you know, above the board of having contributed to a movie and you get residuals from it. But when you're uncredited, then you don't get any residuals from it. So even though I have entire scenes in Straight Outta Compton and All Eyes on Me, because I'm uncredited, I don't get anything from those movies except for what I was paid, so which was nothing. You, so do you like, I mean, I, Creed 2 will just use it like Creed 2 comes out do you take any pride pleasure anything about this movie existing besides the financial benefits whatever it is or oh. do you feel totally disconnected from it um I feel connected to it because I mean I got to work with Sylvester Stallone I got to work with Michael B. Jordan I mean as a fan to have written with Sylvester Stallone and here I'm on the phone like all of a sudden slipping to Rocky Balboa's voice is the is like as a fanboy, like what the f- what? Like you, you like you walk out of the seat all of a sudden because because Sylvester Stallone is he, here's the thing that people don't really understand. Like he doesn't make up the dialogue. He is an incredible writer. He doesn't get enough credit as a screenwriter, even though um, I think he won best screenplay for for the original Rocky. I mean, like he is a writer, um, and and ultimately. The script that he and I worked on, um, had he stayed on to direct, I, I think I would have probably stayed on, um, you know, to be the on-set writer and probably would have had a better argument towards getting um, a screenplay by a screenplay credit as opposed to 
the story by. But yeah, like Stallone is no joke. I mean, he was he's he's a, he's, a, he's fast. He's really smart. And he understands the nuances of the care of, of that character, particularly from the Rocky side, inside and out. Right. And um, is really, you know, so I'll always, you know, treasure that. Um, you know, Michael B is just a force of nature. I didn't get, I didn't really get a chance to really work with him on Creed 2 as much as I, you know, I've, I've met with him a few times um, and is actually just a great guy. So those that and the money is what you walk away with. If you are lucky enough to get an actual like credit credit, then that's icing on the cake. Because for me, it's, um you know, Luke Cage. Like that's me through and through. Like on on so many different levels so because i've had the experience of having something that i've had a, a you know a part of every part of it it helps me like not feel as bitter about those moments when you don't you know get the full credits you know but i have a review you wrote in uh 1996 in the la times <laughs> and it was uh doc's helter skelter album and you wrote Listening to the DOC rap on Helter Skelter, his first post-accident recording, is like seeing Superman trying to fly with kryptonite shackles on his legs. It's painful to witness. It's not a very positive review. I, you know, he was obviously, you know, a, a shattered piece of what he used to be. Having written negatively and positively of artists in your past life, now that you are the subject of reviews, that your work is the subject of reviews, um, do you take criticism well? Can you brush it off your shoulder? Does it hurt when someone writes negatively of one of your shows? Well, no, honestly, I don't, I don't care if somebody loves or hates one of something that I'm part of. I just care if they're lazy about it. Like if you're going to criticize my shit at the very least, watch off, watch the entire season, watch all 13 episodes, watch all eight episodes. Don't just, you know, try to extrapolate certain things where I'm looking at your, at your review. And I'm like, I, I know you skimmed through this because I, but I've also understand, you know, what it's like to be on, on, on the other side. Perfect example, Angelica J. Bastian, you know, she's what I consider like to be one of the best reviewers in television bar none. Like to me, she's like, she's like my Pauline Kale, like, but she did not, there were a lot of moments of Luke Cage season one. She did not like, and she eviscerated certain episodes in, in her recaps, but I was reading them and I was like, damn, this criticism was killing me, but that was really well written. <laughs> like I was like, I was like, man, that, that was clever. Like even, even, even like to, to, to the extent where like, okay, when you bring up that reference um, to, you know, that I'm making to the DOC, you know, with, with the kryptonite shackles, like part of it is like, like, yeah, it's painful, but it's it, damn, it's, it's clever. Right. It, and, and, and you understand what, what it meant. And so when the DOC reads that he knows where his voice is, but which is why it was hard hearing him rap with his damaged voice, knowing that as a vocalist, how incredible his debut was no one can do it better. And then at the same time, he is really the pin behind Dr. Dre. Like Dre does not complete a single record without DLC writing, you know, doing some lyrical contributions. Yeah. Um, so DLC is all over the chronic DLC is all over the con 2001. You know, he was kind of like, if you want to call him the quarterback coach for, for Snoop on, 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 you know, both doggy style and, and um, to that and chronic, like, even though I 
did a dig at that particular record. It's not a dig at the DLC, but the way that I wrote that, even the DLC would be like, well, damn. And that, so to me, that's when in, that that's what the way that I read Angelica J. Bastian was like, I'm like, man, she, she eviscerated my shit, but it was so clever and was so well-written. I honestly was able to use all of those recaps and I bought them right into the writer's room for, for season two. I said, look, I want you guys to read these specific reviews. I understand that it's painful, but she has a point. And the point is, what are we really doing with Luke Cage as a man and, and about his character? What are we really understanding about who it is he is? Because we had to spend so much time trying to build the world. Now we now is the opportunity to really delve deeper into who he is. And that's what season two was was ultimately about. Wow. And we had a really interesting interview uh, about that because I understand from the criticism standpoint what it is to write something. But then that's just your moment of how you feel about something. And then you move on. Yes. But for the artists, it's frozen in stone. And you have to be very careful about what you write. Perfect example. OK, like because this is what happens. You get Stacks and stacks and stacks of content that you had to review. And I remember, I remember this happened to me with um, De La Soul's, uh, the, you know, the stakes are high. Mm-hmm. Or, or no, no, I'm sorry. No, the stakes is high is actually named, is the name of the record, right? Brilliant record. But I didn't like it for the week and a half that I had the record because I listened to it two or three times. I it was stripped down because this was really the first Dilla, you know, like collaboration with them in, in terms of and them producing their own sound. It was completely different than any of the stuff that they did with Prince Paul. Right. And so I basically wrote a review of, of that record where I I basically said, oh, here here it is, De La Soul now has been, you know, their incredibly unique perspective on hip hop and are now trying to basically keep up with the Joneses. And they have the stripped down style that doesn't have a lot of obvious, that doesn't have samples and they're really trying to do something different and it's cool, but I don't really like it. And then two weeks later, I just had the record on in the background and It's So Easy came on. And all of a sudden I realized I made the biggest mistake of my reviewing career because the record was fucking spectacular. It blew my fucking mind. It was like, oh, my God, I finally understand this record. But it was too late. I was writing for the L.A. Times. My review basically destroyed that record. And, you know, I'm lucky that, you know, Poss and because I've known those guys for years. I'm, I'm lucky that they that they've forgiven me. But like I learned then you really do have to spend more time with things. And what's happened to a lot of times with critics is they just don't get the time. And they're on deadline and they and they got to go through shit. And and though the ones that care figure out like the Wesley Morris's of the world and certain people can figure out like how to, you know, even if they eviscerate something like like how to how to kind of give an opinion that allows an audience member to still want to listen or experience or do whatever it is they do. Um, so that they can have their own opinion of it. Because that's just really what criticism is supposed to be. It's supposed to be about giving you an informed opinion so that you have some, something to think about when you listen or when you watch, as opposed to, oh, well, this review is bad. I'm not going to watch that. Or, or I'm not going to listen to this, you know? Right. I just want to say June 29th, 1996. With the stakes of high, however, the New York group finds itself in choppy seas. 
Instead of pushing the envelope, De La Soul seems to have given in to the lack of imagination plaguing hip hop, releasing the most conventional album of its breathtaking run. Damn. <laughs> yeah, I, like I, I reviewed it too quick. Yeah. And it, it, it haunts me because th- like I, that record, I didn't have enough time with it because it was such a shift. It was so different that I didn't really fully understand what happens. And, and I listen to it now and I have, and I have a better understanding. Well, I mean, you know, it's a perfect example. It's like, it's like comparing Jackie Brown to Pulp Fiction. Like when Pulp Fiction came out, you thought that you understood Tarantino. And so then when you watch Jackie Brown, you're like, I like it, but it's just not the same. It isn't until years later you realize, oh my God, Jackie Brown is like the nuance of it. The acting, I mean, De Niro. Right. Uh, I mean, Sam Jackson, holy shit. Like everybody in that movie, you know, Robert Forrester, Pam Greer, Pam Greer, forget about it. But Pam, we can just have this whole podcast by, by, by Pam Greer. But like, you know, you know what I'm saying? It was just like, it's one of those things that because of the contrast, you really needed time to really fully understand like, like what it is it was, you know? Wait, you, as final question here. So we, um, you and I have had in a way parallel incidents, which is this in, uh, 2000, I was um, I had a little spotlight moment where a Atlanta Braves relief pitcher named John Rocker uh, threatened to, you know, beat the shit out of me and et cetera, et cetera. And I had this public moment of embarrassment and being physically threatened. You had a similar incident with Wu-Tang Clan and Master Killer. I don't know. Did he punch you or hit you with a bat? No, I mean- <laughs> Punched me. Punch you. I don't know. I have this memory in my head. I don't remember my. Head. It, it, it was a. It was, it was a right cross to my left eye. Okay, and he also your tape recorder broke, right? No, he didn't break. He took it. I stole your tape recorder. Okay, took your tape recorder. Yeah, I mean, the the, the, the only reason I had that interview is because I had. Uh, it was a microcassette recorder, and I had. I, I put a fresh tape right before I, I went down. I, I went down to talk to Riza and Jizza, who just you know just rolled up. And Master Killer comes out of the car and he was the only person in the clan I hadn't met at that point. He says, yo, 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 is you Chio? I said, yeah, that's just to let you know, Wu-Tang Clan, nothing to fuck with. We come real with our shit, kid. We have fucking cartoon characters. And, you know, my eyes, it's like, it was, it was a Chris Rock moment. Like my, yeah. my eye was just like, you know, swollen. I'm like, and I'm like, whoa. How old were you? And I'm in, I'm in the middle of Staten Island. I'm in front of their manager's house. Yeah, I didn't know how to drive at the time. So a car dropped me off and I'm just and all I'm thinking about is how do I save the interview? Because like I'm here, I'm I'm skipping classes because I I was still a student at Stanford University. And all I'm thinking about is, okay, how can I I've been waiting all week for this interview. I basically had camped out at the office at the offices of the source, even though I was writing this for for, for a a different publication. Um, Actually, no, it was for um, mouth to mouth. My editor was Jonathan Gold, the 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 the, the uh, late Jonathan Gold, who, even though he's a world renowned food critic, is one of the best hip hop journalists of all time. I mean, it's crazy because he it isn't that Jonathan wrote a lot about hip hop, but the pieces that he wrote on N.W.A. for the L.A. Weekly and also um, his Rolling Stone profile of, of Dre um as you know, during the early years of Death Row, it's, they're both seminal pieces of of, of hip hop journalism. And he was just he was Jonathan was just a, just a, a really warm, funny guy, and just incredible at, at what he at what he was able to do. So yeah, so I was just trying to preserve my story, um, and it was just funny. Like they all got in the in, in the um, 
in the MPV and, and, and drove to their show in Boston. And um, I was with the manager, I think it was Mike McDonald. And he got on the phone um, with, uh, I remember he's like, yo, he is on the phone. Where it was, I think it was either with, um, he, he actually might be talking to Master Killer. He got on the phone. He said, yo, 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 you, um, I, I know you, you had to do what you had to do. You know what I'm saying? But like, uh, yo, next time, don't do that in front of my place of business. You know what I'm saying? And I realized nothing was going to happen. This was just, you know, Tuesday or whatever day it was. It, right. it was, it was whatever it was. And so he asked me, he said, like, so what do you need? And so I said, I just want to, I just want to replace my tape recorder. And so he literally wrote a $60 check. Don't you have it? For, still? I, I do. So did you, in, the, in your career, in the aftermath of that, did you ever talk to Master Killer again? We haven't. It's funny because he's actually been on, um, he did another podcast. I think he was on Vlad or something and he denied it. Oh. It, it happened. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. But like, ultimately, um, you know, you move on. Of course. Um, I went from that to getting my first assignment in Rolling Stone, which was to review Biggie's Ready to Die. And then after Anthony DeCurtis, gave me that opportunity in addition to, you know, the stuff that I had already written for rap pages, the bomb hip hop magazine and this and stuff for the source. I was able to build from that, you know, eventually provide and everywhere else, you know, so each opportunity just, just comes and you just do the best you can with, with what you're given. Did you give ready to die a decent review? I hope four okay. stars. <laughs> I mean, I mean, record, record was brilliant. Yeah. Just, you know, yeah. just checking just with your, with your daily soul track record. You never know these days. <laughs> um, no, nah, I mean, and that's and, and that's the thing because I I I love Dela, I still love Dela. It was just like that was the one I, I learned a lot from that because I learned how I, I learned how snap bad decisions and takes happen because that was under the pressure of deadline and it was a record that I really should have sat with longer. And I've learned not only in terms of it changed the way that I reviewed records, but also at the same time. It's also has given me a different perspective on, you know, how, how I'm reviewed, so to speak. Yeah. hundred percent. You kind of learn as you get older in this. I mean, you learn so much as you get older in this business. And one of the things you definitely pick up is the rush to judgment, not necessary. The impulse control you gain as a writer, the, you know, I would say when I was in college at the university of Delaware, I wrote a column calling for the firing of the men's soccer coach, having never seen any of his games. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we all have these really stupid moments where, you know, anyway, you, le- you live and learn as you get older, I think. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a trip sometimes when, when you think about these things and these moments. I mean, you know, like May 12th, 1994, which is which is when that happened, when, when that check was written. And to now, it's like, where did the time go? First of all, I just want to say, to quote you, Ready to Die is the strongest solo rap debut since Ice Cube from the breathtakingly visual moments of his birth to his uh, Cobain-esque end in suicidal thoughts, B.I.G. provides a captivating listen. It's difficult to get him out of your head once you sample what he has to offer. Well done. Yeah, uh, I was right on that one. <laughs> 100%. Uh, listen, man, I appreciate you doing this so much. I mean, you did admire of your work and your career. Well, th- thank you. Best of luck executing those notes. I, I, I know it's, <laughs> it's got to be tough, but, you know, my advice, man, have an open mind. You know, um, and really it is important to follow up their written notes with your own written notes and then have a subsequent phone call to really get to the bottom of what they want, because that's what's what that's how you survive to the next round. 
I want to thank today's guest, Cheo Hodari Coker, for joining me on Two Riders Sing and Yang. You can follow Cheo on Twitter at Cheo underscore Coker and on Instagram at Cheo underscore Hodari underscore Coker. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Sling and Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money for doing this podcast, and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.